Okay, so we're going to do Genesis 1 to 11. your Bibles on you. Um, there's a lot in Genesis 1 to 11. We won't be able to go into full detail, obviously, um, but hopefully we can do justice to this text. So Genesis is the book of beginnings, right? It gives us the foundations and the fundamental teachings on every part of life, you know, uh, work, marriage, uh, sexual intimacy, a uh, whole lot of stuff, right? It deals with creation, and we see that we have a purpose. We see that we are made in the image of God. Uh, we are image bearers. We see that there's an order in the created world, and there, there's a structure, right? So, if there's a swimming pool, and you see a baby and a puppy drowning, you don't have to be like, ah, oh, which, which one do I save? You know, puppy or the baby? You know which one to save, right? It's very clear. Um, the Christian worldview is the only worldview that makes sense of reality, right? It's the only worldview that explains the way we are. How come we are important and valuable? Uh, why do we save the baby and not the puppy, right? Why are we so incredible and amazing and can do uh, some of the greatest stuff that we've seen? Um, and why... At the same time, are we so terrible and evil and wretched and have so many things go wrong? Right? The Christian worldview tells us we are made in the image of God, but sin has entered into the world and we are fallen. So Genesis is a very important book. It's very foundational. It's, very for, for, it's foundational for our worldview and understanding life as we live it day to day. So questions? Who wrote Genesis? Moses. What genre is the book? Narrative. It's narrative, right? Um, also importantly, guys, like obviously it's never just narrative. You will see different genres come into it. So you will see maybe sections of poetry, sections of teaching. You know, Exodus, for example, is a narrative book, but you also have didactic passages, right? The Ten Commandments. Those are didactic teachings. And if you don't see them that way, it's not good. So, we know who... Uh, oh, and what is the context that Moses is writing to? What's happening at the time? Does anyone know? The Israelites are in the wilderness, just out of Egypt. Yes, 100%. So, the Israelites are in the wilderness. Uh, they've just been rescued from Egypt. Um, they've been delivered. And they were in bondage and enslaved for 400 years by the Egyptians. So you can imagine after 400 years, um, how many generations is that? It's a lot of generations, right? All that the people know now is Egyptian culture. They've been indoctrinated into pagan worship and idolatry and Egyptian ways, right? So they've been in a pagan culture so long that in essence, in essence they've lost their identity to the point where these are God's people, but they don't even know God's covenant name. Right? They don't know who Yahweh is. Right? They don't know themselves. So you can imagine um, Moses is seeing like all these lost people and he's sitting them down. He's like, okay, here's a story of who you are. This is, sit down, guys. I'm going to tell you a story about the beginnings. Right? Moses is confronting all they know about God and creation because all they knew was Egyptian gods and myths. Right? And we know that 
Moses knew very well about Egyptian myths and culture and God because uh, I think it's in Acts chapter 7 that Mo- it says that Moses was schooled in all the ways of Egypt. Right? And you know the story. Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's court palace because he was rescued as a baby. So he knew everything you know, there was to know about that. So we, knew, we know through uh, archaeologists that the ancient world, what the ancient world believed about creation. So a lot of the creation stories in Egypt and, and back in the Middle East in that time, all the stories were like, they were bad. They were always very violent and destructive. And you even hear some of that today. So like one of the famous ones is there's like two gods, a god and a goddess, and they're fighting. And then the god kills a goddess. And then from the rotting corpse, he creates the earth, like the earth kind of springs out from that. And then that god creates the human beings so that they can kind of like tend the earth as if they're little gardeners. <clears throat> and there's a lot of stories like that, right? It's just like destruction and chaos and fighting or sadness. You know, a god was sad because he was lonely and then he cried so many tears that the world flooded and that's how we got the sea and, you know, like things like that. So it can, and, and also the people at the time, they were slaves, you know, like slaves being like when you read about it, it seems like some of the worst kinds of uh, treatments of slaves that you've ever seen. So, you know, they probably have like zero self-esteem. They have no worth. They just see life as something horrible to be endured. So you can imagine how amazing it is for them to hear that creation is good, right? Creation is not just like something that came from chaos, um, that human beings are made in the image of God. They're not just slaves. They're not just worthless, right? And so the first 11 chapters of Genesis is what's called the primeval history, which just means ancient history. Um, it's an account of the first years of the world's existence, right? And Genesis is broken up into normally two sections. Genesis 1 to 11 is creation until just after the flood, after Noah's time, uh, and the Tower of Babel. And then chapters 12 to 50 is a story of the patriarchs, right? So Abraham, Joseph, Jacob. Genesis 1 to 11 is controversial, right? Controversial section, not only between um, Christians and non-Christians, because, you know, non-Christians say the world wasn't created, it's evolution, something came from nothing, um, or could the world really have been flooded, uh, you know, like how, how it's not physically impossible, uh, possible to have an ark that could take that many animals, you know, we go back and forth with, with uh, atheists like that. Uh, but even amongst Christians, there's debate about Genesis, right? Was it six literal days? You know, um, does each day represent a period of time? Like is day one a thousand years, day two a thousand years, that kind of thing. Is it poetry, right? Is Genesis 1 just a poetic message about something? Different people have different positions and views. So let's read and see what the account is about. Right. So Genesis 1 verse 1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth The earth was without form and void And darkness was over the face of the deep And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters So that is how the Bible begins It doesn't start off with an apologetic Or defense of God trying to prove anything about, about God right. It doesn't say in the beginning there was a God you know. um, In the beginning God right. God has nothing to prove he just made everything. And notice that it's in the beginning. So there was no time before God, right? God sits outside of time. 
right? He's not bound by it. The same goes for the natural laws. God cannot create laws and then be bound by them, right? Doesn't make sense. He sits outside of time. And this is why Jesus also existed. Uh, so this is why Jesus is also God, because he existed in the beginning, right? If you read John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, right? Um, so Jesus existed uh, outside of time. Um, God creates the earth in the beginning. We have force, time, and matter. But then we are told that the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So it's actually a very depressing picture, this original creation compared to the completed creation, right? God creates the earth entirely covered in water, right? It was flooded and there was no light. So um, uh, you guys have heard of systematic theology? The systematic theology and biblical theology. Systematic theology is systematized teachings about uh, topics in the Bible, right? So what does the whole Bible have to say about angels, about the devil, about uh, the Holy Spirit, about marriage? Uh, biblical theology is like threads or common themes that are followed through scripture where we find progressive uh, revelation, right? So an analogy is almost like we're pretending like we only, in Genesis right now, we don't really see, you know, we're like, okay, what happens next? So we're kind of progressing through scripture. Um, and so with biblical theology, we'll focus on a lot of themes. And one of the themes that's uh, uh, consistent in scripture is the theme of the sea or large bodies of water, right? Um, if you follow the thread of the sea or large bodies of water, you'd notice that the sea is often used to reference God's judgment. So uh, the sea and large bodies of waters are ominous. No one knows what was down there, right? You could die easily if you fell into the waters. And God would bring judgment using the sea. So think of the flood, right? God flooded the world. Uh, think of the Red Sea on the Egyptians, right? He brought judgment on them using that. Think of Jonah, you know, he was judged in the sea. Uh, remember the apostles out in the storm as well. Uh, Jesus calming the storm, right? Um, it's not just a picture of, wow, God is powerful, but he's actually able to stop the chaos and bring order out of it. So water in scripture speaks of chaos, disorder, uh, darkness, fear, being without shape uh, or form, without purpose, right? But in verse 1, who is hovering over the waters? The Holy Spirit, right? And the six days of creation are actually the Holy Spirit making something beautiful and purposeful out of this chaotic world, right? He's bringing order out of disorder, so as you go through scripture, you'll be amazed to see this as an amazing theme, right? The Holy Spirit bringing order out of chaos. Uh, remember, God then floods the world again, right? In Noah's time, in Genesis 8. And we are told in Genesis 8 that the wind blew over the world, right? So the wind, the word for wind there is ruach, which is the same word for the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit brings a new beginning, a new creation, even after Noah, uh, in, in Noah's time when the world was flooded. And what happens at conversion when you become a believer? Right? Where were you and I before Christ? We were in darkness, right? We were, in a, in a sense, without form. We were void. We have no life. We have no shape or form. Our lives have no meaning. It's just chaos and darkness, right? And judgment is looming, right? And then the Holy Spirit comes along and gives us new life. We, are a new, we become a new creation, in Christ. So 
in original creation, we have a dark picture, but the spirit is hovering over the waters, right? Over the darkness and chaos. And then we go into day one and we see that the Trinity is involved in creation, right? Father, Son, Spirit says, let us make man in our image. And we see the same picture in salvation, right? When we made new again, right? It's Christ, God has chosen us, Christ dies for us, and uh, the Spirit is the one who works in us. So um, it's, really, it's really an amazing picture and something that you see consistently throughout Scripture. So the six days of creation, is it literal or not? Literal. Why? Why do you think? <laughs> you say in six literal days? So I agree with you. I think it's literal. And if I'm asked to prove it, I will use the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy or Exodus, right? Um, because those are didactic teachings, right? In, in Exodus 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the, Sabbath, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to your Lord. Verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Right? So we know from that passage that it was literal. Um, Jesus referred to the creation as a literal thing. You know? So... We know from scripture that it's definitely literal. So people who are saying it's poetic or mean something else, they really have no grounds for that in scripture. And then in the six days, can I erase this? Are you guys still using it? So in the six days, you see this, this pattern of forming and then filling, right? So you have forming, filling, right? The first day, what is created? It's the heavens, right? Second day, what's created? the seas or the oceans and then the third day is the land right trees and vegetation and then day four five and six you see god filling these different things right so on the day on the fourth day what does he create to fill the heavens sun moon and stars on the fifth day Questions. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask: Does creation start in verse five or in this one? Like uh, I always read it as like verse one uh, to yeah, verse one. It was like just uh, like woman eating, so and then creation mm. begins in verse five. So I think it. I think it starts in verse three. So life, yeah, life was created, based all the heavens. Which, which came this time? I thought this one was like, someone of God creating heaven and earth. Verse 1. Oh, you saying verse 1 or chapter 1? Verse 
Oh, this one. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. So, and then the creation starts in verse 3. Oh, the heavens, that's the God starting the creation. Oh, okay. So I think first he, he creates the, not the void, right? The, uh, he creates the earth, but it's flooded, right? And then the creative work where... God is like creating the heavens and the oceans and stuff. That's from verse 3. That's, that's how I read it. And if that makes sense. So like when we're speaking about how there's chaos and darkness in the world. And I think that that's verse 1. Right? And then we told the spirit is hovering over it. And then God says, let there be light. So some say that's actually still the, like verse 1 is the first day. And I think that's also, that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, are we still together? I would say that um, this one is the creation of matter itself. You know, like mm. when he talks about the earth being formless and void, mm. um, there's the creation of that, you know, my understanding is in day one, there's the creation of the matter itself. Mm. You know, it's like time, space and matter, it has to all come into existence at the same time. And since that was the beginning, you know, for you to have a beginning, you have to have um, time, time and you have to have matter to be placed in that time and you need space to place the matter so all yeah. of that had to come into existence at the same time and yeah. that marks the, the beginning which would be day one and um, in day one then light is created mm. it's just that you know um, I would think that it doesn't go into the details mm. of each and every aspect of that but my thinking is as it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was the creation of, you know, the heavens being space and the earth being matter. And in the beginning, the beginning, the referencing time. So it, yeah. all of that comes into existence. And then God says, let there be light. And that is day one. Okay. That's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. You want to agree with that? Disagree. So, can we say from verse 3 that was the beginning of perfection him making or yeah I mean it, it, it depends so I think if, if you if you take verse 3 as um, I'm just not comfortable like saying perfection like the beginning of perfection. I think from verse one, when he creates, even the expanse, even though it's like dark or void, it's not like it's imperfect. Um, yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with that personally. Say that again. So he created how? So um, if we look at uh, the other verses, on this day he created this, on that day he mm. created this. But then in verse one, until day two, there isn't really like a lapse of 
Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I see like definite closing off of days. Like, mm. you know, there was an evening and there was night. I mean, there was morning, the first day. So I don't think it's us limiting God like that. I think that's just how we chose to to create. So I see days where like, okay, he's stopping here. And then the next day, and then he's stopping here. You know, is that what you... What you... I'll, I'll just think, I'll try to freeze it better. Okay. So, can, I, can I try and really address what she's saying? Sure. My thinking is, and she's saying that you can fall into the risk of trying to limit God to say, on day one, God only created light. Hmm. But then she's saying that um, in day one you can have um, the creation of of, 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 of of the world itself, you know, the heavens and the earth, oh. and then and light included in that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like if you look, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then the Holy Spirit hovering over, and then God said, let there be light. Like, Oh, okay, I hear you now. So what I'm saying is, when we try to, like, say day one he created this only day two, yes, the other was specified, but on that first day, um, according to what's written here, it doesn't really specify that after creating the heavens and the earth, before creating light, they, like, there was a day in yeah. between. Yeah, okay. So he might have created them the same day after seeing that, you know, I created heaven and earth, but... I want to be light. Okay. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. I don't know if that makes sense to you, what you said, right? Yeah. Now I'm with you. I agree with you. And um, just the last point, I agree with that mainly because um, you sometimes find Christians doing scriptural gymnastics where they're trying to, you know, argue certain evolutionary ideas into the Bible where mm -hmm. people would say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there's a lapse of millions of years, mm -hmm. and then when day one comes and light is created, then they argue, well, this is when then God was, was, was recreating the earth, you know, for modern day man. But mm -hmm. historically, there's been things happening, it's like, no, but the Bible doesn't say any of that, but it's people trying to argue in the existence of a gap, which is undefined, and, you know, where they can squeeze in whatever they want to yeah. squeeze in to accommodate, like the evolution theory and things like that. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Um, where were we? Oh, sun, moon, and stars. Um, fifth day, what's, what's filled? The beasts. Yeah, the birds, the, the birds and the sea creatures. I want to say, did you say the bees or the beasts? Beasts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's filling in the sky. Um, inside the oceans and the... Birds and that's our fish, sea creatures, right? Yes. And then the last day, so sixth day, what does it create? Land and animals. Animals. Yeah, question. Heavens is everything above us. If, yeah. is it, isn't it the heavens number four? The heavens, no. 
No. So, uh, what's at verse 3, right? Tip your light. Um, so, verse 3 is like, what? Let it be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, called the light the day, and uh, the. the Sorry. Called the light the day and the darkness is called night. And there was evening and there was morning, first day. So heavens is like what's above us, what we can see looking up. Right? There was just light there, but there was light without things. Because like I think when it gets to the sun and the moon and the stars. What does he say? It's verse 14, right? Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. To separate the day from the night. So that's why I call him the heavens. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Good. It doesn't make sense. Actually, so, so does it mean the universe? Yeah. Because I mean, when you look up, you, you're actually looking at the universe, but you can't. I mean, when you're looking at stars, you're seeing planets in other universes. Sure. Um, so. Could that then possibly include the third heaven? Third heaven? Yes. What do you mean? Um, the realm where the angels would be. Oh. Where the heavenly beings rule. Yes. Because, I mean, we do know that um, God exists outside of time, space, and matter. And I don't think that. Um, um, uh, okay. And, and, and another thing that we also know from scripture is that God pre-exists everything because he has no beginning, including the angels. So it could be that like the heavens, in the, the beginning, yeah. they were also, like as the heavens and the earth were created, it could include the heavens, not only the sky, the universe, oh, but the, but third the heavens, heavens okay. and the third heavens, yeah. Yeah. which would include in that the creation of the angels even though there's no narrative as to mm. how the heavens themselves third heaven were filled and formed and all of that yeah. because the narrative only focuses on the earth which is what is relevant to us yeah yeah i i think so because like you say the, the angels are created beings as well mm. so they could have been created this time um during this creation period mm. and yeah yeah i agree with that i don't know if we I hear that. To be honest, I always thought that's what it was. Did I? Heavens. To be honest, I always thought that's what it was. Heavens. Oh, heavens, like <laughs> where the angels and yeah. them are. The heavens, where stars and planets are, I always thought that's part of creation. Yeah, I mean, it could be things we don't really know from scripture yeah. like that. We can only kind of theorize. Yeah. It's nice to theorize. Um. So there's forming and filling, right? This is what's created, what's formed, what's filled. Um, and then God creates man, right? Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So man is not some normal creation. Man is special in this account. He's made in the image and likeness of God, right? And God has given him charge of everything in creation. That is what the scripture says, right? He is to rule over everything. We are made in God's own image. We are created to be like the creator, right? It's our mandate to do like what God does. And that is to bring order out of chaos. And I remember we were at Iron Man and we were talking about this. 
and it's 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 all out of chaos in our lives in almost every aspect you know in our work um even uh, in in our creative spaces in our relationship with people because in our relationships with people we are to bring order out of that right we have to maintain relationships we have to build relationships with people so it's really far reaching it it, it goes reaches every aspect of life that you can think of um we bring all out of chaos we are to, to display god's glory it means men and women have intrinsic value because god has given us to us right it means we have a purpose and there is there is a purpose in creation unlike an atheistic worldview where there is no meaning in life and we are just some cosmic accident who happen to be here right so if you go to chapter 2 uh, in 6 days god creates and on the 7th day he rests uh, that's where we get our week from right 6 days of work and one day of rest rest is very important for us right need to rest guys talk to your boss talk to your lecturer need to rest right what's interesting is god sorry god has made us right it's god designed god has designed us to rest um because it goes back all the way to creation when things were good when things were perfect and we needed to rest how much more now you know when we're living in a fallen world do we need to rest and what's interesting about the seventh day is that it's not closed right the other days are closed it says there was evening and then morning the first day evening and morning then the second day etc etc but the seventh day is open there's no mention of evening morning it leaves it open ended so god enters his rest and it's left open and the writer of hebrews in chapter 4 says that a rest remains for us talking about believers to enter um so when we become saved we enter into god's rest right we enter into that rest and when we are in glory we enter into it perfectly right so quick question when adam is created how is he created where 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 does he come from and where is he pointed to the ground right he's created from the ground and he's told to work the ground right where does eve come from and where does god point her to from yes that's very specific if he said man i'd be happy with that so eve comes from the man and she's pointed to the man right um and without her he is incomplete right it's not good for man to be alone right the lord says a man must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they must become one flesh so we have marriage as a design of god before the fall so marriage is a good thing right um god creates adam from the ground points him to the ground to work it uh, which brings us to another important theme which is that of the temple so we talked about water but there's a theme of the temple the garden of eden is really a temple right because it's where god meets with humanity right that was the purpose of a temple in the old testament there is the the Jew, the israelites would go to the temple to meet with god to worship him even in the words right to work and to keep it right that's usually applied to priests they work and they keep the temple so adam is a priest in the temple to protect it and look after the garden right he's a is in a privileged position because he's prophet and priest and a king right he gets to look after the temple um and to commune with god in it and he gets to eat of the fruit of this this garden adam is not alone god puts him into deep sleep rope and then there's a wife you know 
again the role of men and women in 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 create sorry the role of men and women is a creation ordinance right in a marriage the man is to be the head and the wife is to submit under his authority and it has nothing to do with worth and value right especially in our day and age like if you go and say that if you put on social media it's over for you right um but we go by what scripture says and what it teaches and it is good right despite what the culture may say um it's a role and it glorifies god right submission has become a dirty word in our culture and christians are very even afraid to speak of it you know when we when we bring up submission we always say but you know submit but submit but you know don't have to be ashamed don't have to be afraid it is what uh the word teaches right and remember that jesus also submits to the father right the holy spirit submits to the father and to jesus and they are no less god right Christ is God, the Spirit is God, and the Father is God. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So that's the, at the end of chapter 2, right? And that's a very, very important line. It's a very, it almost stands out because it's like, it's kind of weird. You know, they were naked and not ashamed. Why is it like, you know, bringing it up there? Um, but it could be, I think it's one of the most important verses in that chapter. Um, because they are naked and unashamed. And this all changes as soon as sin enters into the world. What does it bring? Almost instantly brings shame. And what do they do? Cover themselves up, right? To this day, that's how we react to sin, right? It brings about shame. And we look for any means outside of God to cover it up, right? Whether in our conscience, whether out in people's perception about us. Shame is a big thing, Right? And it's interesting because um, we live in a Western culture, Western society, right? Um, and we don't really use shame as like, you know, a deterrent in society. So the world is roughly divided into the, the Western worldview, the African worldview, and the Eastern worldview, right? So the Western worldview, worldview normally we talk about guilt there, right? Right and wrong. We have courts, we have laws you know do the law do law, do what's right what's uh, what's lawful don't do wrong in the eastern worldview honor and shame are big you know think of those japanese movies where if you brought shame to the to the tribe you know you stab yourself you kill yourself right uh if you if some if you brought shame that was like a massive thing you know and in our in the african worldview even though we kind of westernize africans in the african worldview you still see power and fear right power it's very dominant patri patriarchal um structure and we rule by fear right um don't say this against the elders don't speak in this way you know have some fear you're supposed to have irreverent fear of those who are uh, above, above you but shame out of all these things is something that can stay with you for a very long time right there's a lot of shame as you go through scripture people who are sick get rejected people who are physically disabled in scripture they get rejected right people who cannot get married are rejected and people who can't have children the barren right all those people experience a lot of shame by virtue of those things but those are the very same people that the lord jesus meets and walks with right he came for those people he comes for this despised and the forsaken all those who experience shame so it's also worth noting that when you get to the gospels and the crucifixion right as violent as it is the, like, have you noticed how, that the bigger focus there is about the shame that Jesus endured, 
right? He was mocked. He was spat upon. Um, it's a huge focus because sin brings shame, right? It's focusing on the shame that he took on our behalf. He takes away our shame that sin brings, right? Chapter 3, um, verse 4, right? We have man and woman in the garden. Life is good, we assume. And the, but the serpent comes and says to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, speaking of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we all know the account of the fall. The devil comes to Adam and Eve. He tells Eve that she will be like God, right? What is the irony there? She already is like God, right? She's made in the image of God. Also, the devil makes God look stingy, right? Because what did God say to Adam and Eve, right? Literally says like, yeah, I can have everything but this one little tree and its fruit over here. But what does the devil make it look like? Makes it look like God is stingy. That's still his way of operating today, right? He distorts the character of God, makes God look stingy, makes God look like a killjoy. Um, oh, you, you Christians don't have fun. You know, you Christians are so, what, like, shackled up because you're not sexually liberated. You know, you need to free yourself. Same thing that's happening today, right? Um, sin distorts the truth about who God is, but it's always a lie, right? It's never true. When the serpent is talking, right, the you over there is actually plural in the Hebrew, right? So he wasn't talking to Eve alone. Adam was there. People seem to think he was somewhere else um, playing fetch with the lions or wrestling with the bears. I don't know what our relationship was like with the animals in, in, like in the garden, but he was there. He was with his wife, right? And she took off its fruit and ate, and she gave some also to her husband who was there with her, right? And he ate. So she gives it to Adam, who is right next to her. Adam is already failing on his responsibilities to protect and care for his bride, right? Um, Adam fails humanity. He eats, and what happens immediately? Sin enters the picture, right? And immediately there's shame. Like we said, sin brings shame. They start blaming one another and avoiding responsibility, Adam blames God and the woman in verse 12. He says, the, the woman that you gave me, God, you know, and then she blames the serpent. There's shame. So you can see them already trying to cover it up, you know, trying to divert it to somewhere else, you know, put the guilt on uh, the woman or on God or the serpent. And then verse 14, right, we get the curses and we also get what's called the first gospel, right? Verse 14 says, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see the curse of sin and its devastating effects, right? We are told that there will be two lines. Seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So those who are God's children and those who are children of the devil. Right? Sounds hectic, right? Children of the devil. It's like, um, not my dad. But um, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Right? It says that in John 
uh, 8 verse 44. And what that means, in the Hebrew worldview, right, to be a child of this person or that person is to be in, that, in the character of that person, right? So to follow and, be, it's to follow and behave like them. So when he says you, will, you, you are of your father, the devil, he says you are in the character of the devil, right? So there will be those who are of the character of God and those who are of the character of the devil, right? It also states that there will always be a clash between those who follow God and those who follow the devil, right? There I will put enmity between the woman and uh, the serpent. Now, very few people go around saying, I follow the devil, right? Um, even, even atheists shun those people who call themselves sata- satanists or who worship the devil. Um, but the reality is, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, that is exactly who you are, right? That's what scripture teaches. teaches that if you are not of God, then you are of the devil, right? You cannot be lukewarm. There is no in-between. It's either you are of uh, the living or you are of the dead. And notice how, like I said, it's the Lord who brings enmity between us and Satan because we tend towards being like Satan, right? And that's what happens at salvation. God steps in and puts friction between our old self, who is in the character of Satan, and our new being in Christ. Verse 15 is, of chapter 3 is what theologians call the first gospel, right? Because it's promising a savior from what we have lost in Adam, right? What we've lost in Adam, we will gain much more in Christ, right? So from here on out, if you are reading this for the first time, you can imagine the Israelites, they're hearing this from Moses, they're like, ah, oh, you know what? Let's, let's wait for this guy who will come and make things right. right. We're going to be on the lookout for someone. We're going to look out for the serpent crusher that God has promised. So because of sin, there will also be some of the curses. right? Uh, because of sin, there will be pain in childbearing. Um, that's, that's Eve's, uh, uh, one of the, the curses uh, for Eve. Right? And it's not only physical, right? physical childbearing, but also emotional pain. Right, the heartache surrounding the raising of your young, right? And I think many mothers can attest to the, the many sorrows that they suffer in raising children. And um, there's other passages which kind of also illustrate this, but we'll get to that in the New Testament. But verse 16 also says, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So these words from uh, from the Lord, they indicate that there will be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship, right? So the original picture, the original design is man uh, leading, woman uh, submitting, and that's God's design. That's, it's complementary like that. And in the curse, those things are, the temptation is to go against those designs, right? She shall desire for her husband. The word desire there, right, is, sounds like a good thing. You will desire your husband, Husband's like, yes, you know, that's a great curse. Um, but uh, the, the, t- the only time that word is used is in chapter 4, when it speaks of sin desire, sin's desire for Cain, right? So that word is a destructive desire, desire to overpower, to, you know, dominate. So sin has distorted and damaged the marriage relationship. Um, and... On the man's part, he shall rule, rule over you. That's a domineering rule on the part of the husband, right? So he's going against his design to love and protect and lay down his life for the wife, right? To the point where he's 
uh, domineering over her. She's, he's abusive. Um, and the whole relationship is just twisted now. It's bad. There's conflict in marriage because of that. Then there's more curses, right? Um, to the snake, cursed, oh, sorry, to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So do you guys think that God went overboard with his judgment? You know, I mean, it's only a fruit, right? No, you guys are fine with that? Yes, God. Okay. Okay, let's speed it up. Uh, Genesis 4, right? We get Cain and Abel. Uh, they're born and they offer... Uh, it's time for them to offer sacrifices. Yes, Percy. Uh, I find Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 interesting. After uh, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and then they were naked, and then uh, they fell the sheep, and then it creates as follows. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Mm. So that's kind of like grace, you know, like mm. even though yeah. they sin. Yeah, it's like he's still taking care of them. Yeah. And it's interesting because remember what I told him, like the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. But the Lord doesn't kill them just yet. All right. Um, so even in that, even in his judgment, God is gracious and merciful and kind. And if you think about the curse on the woman, right, um, you know, he's still giving hope in that. He's like, you know, things have gone wrong. Uh, Eve, you were deceived, you did this, but through you, you know, um, the world will be saved. You know, like, you will bear the savior of the world. Well, not Eve directly, but you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel are born, and it's time for them to offer sacrifices. The assumption is the Lord had given instructions on sacrifices, Abel's is accepted, accepted, but Cain's not, right? Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer. Abel gave of the first fruit. So the first fruit was your profit, right? So it's, it's an exercise that required a lot of faith because if you think about it, if you're a farmer, the first crops, that's like, yes, you know, you're not guaranteed a second crop. Now you have to cut that down and sacrifice to the Lord and then pray that he will provide second, third, fourth. Same thing with the cattle, right? You're not sure if it'll bear more children. Um, so you're supposed to give of the first fruits, right? An act which, which indicates faith in God. So Cain probably brought the rotten crops that he wouldn't eat anyways, you know, uh, which wouldn't cost him, you know. So it wasn't a sacrifice. It's only a sacrifice if it costs you. So the Lord has no regard for Cain's offering, but he does for Abel's. Cain is angry and jealous of his brother. God says, if you do what is right, then you will be accepted and you will be blessed. Right? He says this to Cain, but... We all know what happens afterwards, right? Um, Abel is murdered. Abel did what was good. He was righteous in the situation. And what happens to him? He gets killed, right? You would think, well, Cain will surely get punished now. You know, he's really going to get what's coming to him. But what does God do to Cain? Protects him, right? Protects him. God puts on a mark on Cain to prevent anyone from attacking him. Doesn't make sense morally. Does God not promise good to those who do good, right? And judgment to those who do evil. Either God is a liar or he's pointing beyond this life to where just, perfect justice will be served, right? Abel is probably most, is chilling in heaven, you know. 
experiencing eternal joy. And we know that Cain is experiencing eternal judgment, right? He's getting what is due to him there. And we see that all the time. Believers suffer and endure hardships on earth. Where is the blessing? You know, while the children of the devil flourish. You know, the seed of the serpent is flourishing by all the standards of the world. So, ultimately we can rest in that God will pass eternal judgment on all, right? Um, think of the apostles and the early church, right? Difficult life does not mean that God is against you, right? Suffering and trials are promised to Christians. Likewise, a perfect happy life does not mean God's blessing, right? Um, summarizing chapters 5 to 10, right? From 5 to 10, we see how quickly humanity has fallen. It wasn't gradual, right? Uh, the very first child who was born was a murderer. And humanity just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, right? Till eventually God says in Genesis 6, chapter 5, uh, sorry, Genesis 6, verse 5, he says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So God chooses to save one man's family who was still righteous and that is Noah. He floods the whole earth and it's almost like a reversal of creation, right? The whole earth is covered in water, right? And I think you'll notice that in, in scripture when he speaks of God's judgment, it's almost like a reversal of creation every time. It brings about disorder, right? It brings about chaos, um, brings about darkness in the land. So it's always something interesting to pick up on. The whole world is covered in water again, right? It's not a local flood because remember God says at the end of this that he will never flood the world this way again. And we have local floods all the time. There's somewhere in the world probably flooded right now. So this was, you know, global flooding. Um, and after the flood, there's a wind that blows over the earth and it's the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit blows over the earth, a new beginning, right? Genesis 9, we could think that Noah might be the serpent crusher because he's described as a righteous man, a good man, right? He's the only man, the righteous man, who saved uh, him and his family. So as the Israelites are listening to Moses narrate, they could be thinking, he's the guy, you know, Noah's the one who will deliver us from the serpent. But what happens with Noah? He gets drunk, right? Uh, he gets drunk, he sins, and there's a whole episode with his sons um, and uh, the sons whom he curses. So he has three sons, right? He has Shem and Japheth and Ham. So out of Shem, we get the Semitic tribes, right? So descendants of Shem are the Semitic tribes. Those are your Hebrew and Arabic people, right? We get those people from there. And from Japheth, right, we get the tribes that go north and west. So those are all your European tribes, right? And then from Ham, you get the African tribes. You get people going south. Um, and Ham is in the account, if you read the account, he's the one who exposes Noah's nakedness and he's cursed, right? Uh, so this, this account uh, eventually kind of became the biblical justification for enslavers saying that Africans were cursed by God, right? But the thing is, Ham is not the one who was cursed in the account, if you read carefully, it's Canaan who was cursed, right? And to, so it's the people of Canaan. And to this day, the Canaanites no longer exist because uh, they, were wiped, they were wiped out by God's judgment. So if ever you hear people say, you know, the Bible says Africans were cursed, that's why they've experienced slavery, poverty, da da da, simply not true.
then Genesis 8, 9, and 10. I know we're skipping over here, but we're out of time, guys. Uh, 8, 9, and 10, a new covenant is made with Noah. So the same things that were said to Adam are said to Noah, right? Go out into the earth, be fruitful, have many babies by multiplying, exercise dominion. But there's an addition that's made to the covenant, which is binding on all humanity. And that is uh, the death penalty is instituted, right? So if someone murders, then they forfeit their life, right? Um, but instead of going out, for, of humanity going out and multiplying, they don't. They stick together. And if you read the account of the Tower of Babel, man says, let's make a name for ourselves, right? They decide to build a tower to show how great man is, right? Um, and, they, and that's in uh, Genesis 11, verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth, right? And just a quick uh, uh, look at that. You know, all religions, even Christians can be about this. You know, let's make a name for ourselves, right? It's all about the external. It's all about, look how good we are. You know, they make a show about what they do or don't eat, what they do or don't wear, you know, what they do in church or what they don't do in church, how good they are, right? They're making a name for themselves um, instead of, making the name of God glorious and famous. That's what was happening in Babel. So what does God do? He comes down, separates them, brings division by confusing the languages, um, and then disperses them, right? Finally, you know, without God intervening, with God intervening, humanity goes out and does what God intended them. Um, there you get like the different cultures and languages, and um, it's a gracious thing for God to do because um, have you noticed how when people are gathered, how sin abounds? You know, like people just like people like to sin in groups. You know, we don't like to sin alone. Um, whenever there's unity or in anything outside of Jesus, you know, ten times out of ten, it's gonna be bad. So, yeah, that's a quick summary. I know we flew over that towards the end, but any questions?